Hi there, and welcome to the second season of the Reimagine Marketing Podcast. My name is Steven Hoffmans, and I will be your host for this episode. In today's sessions, we'll talk about marketing planning. We will try to answer questions like, can marketing planning and agility go hand in hand? What do you do when your marketing plan ends up in bad results? And to find an answer to these difficult questions, I have invited the lovely Sandy Kirchhoff. Sandy holds a Master of Science in Marketing and has held different marketing positions at Office Depot. From Retention Manager to Head of Campaigns and today Senior Manager of Commercial Marketing, she is always planning for an awesome customer experience and a good return on marketing investment, making her the perfect sparing partner for today's topic. Welcome to the podcast, Sandy. Thank you, Stephen. Glad to be here. Oh, happy to have you here. So let's start with my favorite part of the show, which is your marketing quote. Every time I invite a guest, I ask them about their quote. So I'm very curious. What is the quote that you prepared for your audience today? Well, it's not directly related to marketing, but it is related to what we're going to be talking about today, marketing planning. So my favorite quote, probably my favorite quote in life is from Benjamin Franklin. It's by failing to prepare, you prepare to fail. Wow. That's actually a good one for this session. It is, isn't it? Planning. If you don't plan, you don't know where you're going to. Exactly. Oh, I love it. Thank you. Very surprising. Oh, it's great. I'm very excited to have you as a guest today. I'm really excited also about the topic marketing planning. It's not always a, a very fancy topic or, or, or sometimes the audience is looking at the topic of, okay, should we do marketing planning? Yes or no? So Really excited to have you here and, and also have you from your experience and your background from Office Depot. So just to allow the audience to get to know you, can you explain a bit your journey at uh, Office Depot, where you started and, and how you became the commercial uh, marketing director at um, Office Depot? Sure, uh, Steve, no problem. Oh, gosh, I've been with Office Depot for, well, Office Depot Europe for about 10 years now. I started as a data quality executive that was looking after making sure all the different marketing marketing teams were entering proper data into our campaign planning tool. And, and that wasn't an easy one because we were scattered across different locations. All the marketing teams were separated. Um, some were looking after online, some were looking after offline. So it was just kind of making sure everybody's, you know, working in the right way in the same tool. And I think that's really helped me in the role that I am today. And I think that's also why marketing planning is so close to my heart, because I have been doing that since the beginning. And I've kind of gone onto a journey over the last couple of years of just consolidating across Europe. So as part of kind of Office Depot's history, we've been looking at kind of yeah, creating more synergies and efficiencies by consolidating countries, consolidating channels. And I've always been part of that process and, you know, making sure everything's set up correctly and bringing all the different marketing teams together and just having been there for the last 10 years and, you know, helping shape the Office Depot that it is today or the Viking that it is today, which is actually our e-commerce brand that we operate under in Europe. That's kind of brought me to, to my role today. And I think my, my planning and being a little bit of a, of a nerd when it comes to that has kind of helped me in my, in my role today. <laughs> now, you know, what I like is that you start at the foundation, right? It's all about, it starts with data, having good quality data, 
gaining insight from that data, and then you can steer, I assume, your your marketing plan. One of the things that that I find very interesting is you you talked about aligning different countries. You talked about making sure that we are all going in the in the same direction. Having these um, diverse diverse set of cultures, how do you? What are, what are the challenges or what is the advice that you can give? How do you align the marketing organizations with those different backgrounds, those different cultures, and make sure that they still have their own local touch? I think you just got to do it somehow. I mean, it's it's really important to, to be aware and to be conscious about the different cultures that are in the different countries. So really understanding, you know, the, the mindset that particular cultures have and, and some don't have. So... I think with me being a German, I'm very aware of the fact that I can be very direct. You know, I don't like to smooth things over, um, but I know that's not appreciated in all the different countries. If it comes to more English-speaking countries, it's much more about being polite. So a little bit having those stereotypes in your head, but I think being open is probably the most important one. Being open to understanding that things are different in different countries and just together trying to manage through that and I think it's about gaining the trust of everybody so it's not about forcing something from one culture from one country into another one but really doing it together as a team and and by including everyone as well so I think when we started doing this it's about kind of involving all the different countries from when we used to be kind of separate per country, and then just looking at what's the best way forward and, and trying to get people to understand the benefits. Because it is more efficient to consolidate across the countries. And I think, let's say, the more natural ones, so for example, Germany, Austria, and Switzerland are much more natural to consolidate rather than trying to combine the German or the Dutch market. So I think just by taking it step by step, but taking the learnings from that, that will kind of help in coming to a European approach, but also never forget countries are different. Customers are different in the different countries. So we have a lot of 80-20 rules in place, but um, probably the same applies here as well. So, you know, on average, we can probably consolidate and combine 80% of all our activities, and then we can specialize for the 20% that's needed. Yeah, it makes sense. I think also that and the way you explain it is is everybody needs to everybody has his own culture, but also the customer has his own culture. I remember you talking about having like yeah is is the French customer is it the same customer as the German customer? Is it the same customer as the Dutch customer or or do they all shop differently? Um, at least what we can see in our customer base is you know they're they're all kind of different. so we can see French customers, for example, they have a much higher affinity for free gifts and um, for things being more colorful uh, when it comes to free gifts. So they're, if we choose for a backpack, for example, uh, we'll typically go for a colored one, whereas in Germany, a black backpack would be working much better. But we can also see the decision makers are quite different. So again, a kind of a typical um, situation that we have is the secretary will be placing the order in Germany, whereas in the UK, it's much more the head of the business or one of the managers that will be placing orders. Also, the genders can differ quite a lot across the countries. The The Dutch market, for example, is a very gender neutral market where we have equal share. So the customer is different and, and, and the way the customer likes to place orders, the way the customer likes to be incentivized 
all of that needs to t- be taken into account into a marketing plan and we'll make the adjustments and, and the adaptions as needed across the different markets. So actually you need, when, when you look at the planning perspective, you have indeed a, a fixed amount, 80-20, but actually you're, what I'm hearing now is that that 20% can go very specific because every market has these very specific needs. You need to adapt your promotion strategy to every market. So probably customer journey also, you have a very specific customer journey strategy then per country as well as they shop differently in the different countries. Yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll standardize where we can, for example, you know, we might be standardizing certain email campaigns, certain printed media, but then we push it out differently to the different segments, depending on the market. So even though within a channel, we can adapt to that specific country or to that specific customer, doesn't mean the material cannot always be standardized or, you know, we might decide to to do a promotion on paper, but what paper we promote might then again be different per country. So, you know, it can go down to a very detailed level, but from a kind of high level point of view, we will standardize and then adapt. But it's true. So it can be in, in the channels, it can be in our promotions. So there's a lot of different angles that you can look at it from. So every country can still um, have a a number of freedom in, in how they implement their promotion uh, budget or, or the promotion assets. Sometimes when, when I discuss with companies, I, I hear that um, rigidity goes hand in hand with planning. While I think there should be room for agility, and I think with with COVID, eh? so mm-hmm. we are December 2019, your, your, your plan and budgets are ready. And then you kick off the first quarter and everything works fine, seems promising eh? because you built that whole nice marketing plan based on your 80-20% loo. You, you have a local strategy, but then at some point COVID kicks in and you need to, you need to or you need not, I don't know, to <laughs> adapt your whole marketing planning. How do you, how do you handle such a situation? Um, I, I think for us, we handle it very well. So... And I think this is where um, people, you know, sometimes get the wrong thought in their head. Just because we plan doesn't mean things are set in stone. And I think that's like one of the first things that I'm hoping I can eliminate through the session today is to get that out of people's mindset is that planning doesn't mean you can't change anything. So what we'll do is, yes, we'll create a 12-month plan. Uh, we'll create that ahead of time. And obviously COVID was something, no, you know, nobody had foreseen or the speed that it came at. But if it's not called COVID, it was called something else. It just might have been, you know, smaller or slower, but something will always come along that will make you adapt your plan. So we've kind of handled it within our regular process, which again, you know, brings back that kind of 80-20 rule. So we have a kind of 80% fixed campaign plan or marketing plan uh, where we leave 20% room for adjustment. But even when we talk about that 80% plan, it's quite high level and we'll kind of go through refinement sessions um, throughout the year. So even though I have a 12-month plan, I'll revise it and refine it every quarter to make it more specific. I'll do that again on a monthly base, and then I'll even break it down onto a weekly base. And by going through those different refinement sessions, I'm much closer to the campaign goal I have dates, and I can adapt either my target group, my offering, my promotion, whatever it is that needs to be, needs to be altered uh, for that specific period in time. So even though I have a 80% fixed plan, 
there's still a lot of room for us to change. And we've handled COVID that same way that we've we've gone through those refinement sessions. We've just we've we've done them slightly more frequently or you know, give a little bit more room for ad hoc than we would have previously done. But in general, our standard campaign planning cycle that we've implemented a couple years ago, and that's really been kind of trial and error proof, uh, we've been able we've been able to use during this time, and that has given us a tremendous amount of security. So, as much as I run, or within my department, I have a marketing planning team that does all of that. That creates you know, these huge marketing plans for the next 12 months, I think we're we're very agile and very flexible in the way that we're running our activities because we always leave room for doing this. So it's, it's um, the impact of COVID is more about the fact that, okay, the plan, you put in more agility and eh, more flexibility in this case, but you also increase the, the frequency of planning reviews maybe to adapt to the ever-changing market because that's what I understand is that the, the market is changing faster. So the frequency goes with it. The, the faster the market is changing, the um, more frequent you will have reviews of your planning session in, in, in comparison to before COVID. Is that correct? Or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure as you know, for the majority of retailers, we could really see product life cycles changing as well. So the demand in certain assortments that have that have been there before have decrease you know at the same time demand has come up for assortment that wasn't as big before or as popular or new assortments for example with those rapid tests that you can do at home that's something that didn't exist before how do you market that and make that available to your customers but I think for us, the most important thing is we have been able to rely on our existing processes that we have implemented over the last years you know as having, planning a fundamental part of our business. I found very interesting the fact, and this is, I think, a reality that many retailers had during that, that COVID period. You said some demand was higher and then the demand got lower for other products. So how do you handle that from a marketing perspective? Do you start promoting certain products that nobody wants anymore? Or how do you, because you, you have that <laughs> I don't stock, think any- so I'm very... Yeah, I would say I don't think anybody ever expected we're going to have a worldwide crisis and running out of toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Nobody wants to starve without toilet paper, apparently. Exactly. <laughs> you have to choose. <laughs> that's a funny. Um, no, good. Interesting. Ne- next to, so you have the planning aspect and, and then what, what comes in with, with uh, planning is also being able to track uh, marketing activities, being able to track in what status your campaigns are. How did, did the people react to the fact that you could see, okay, we're in this planning stage, you need to spend this amount of time on campaign, we're going to track where you are on your marketing plan and we're going to evaluate. How did people, how did you succeed in that, that specific change? I don't think it, it, it's something that you can do over a day, but how did that work? How did you you got to that tracking perspective and being able to allow an evaluation of what the things you're doing? Well, I mean, there's when it comes to measuring our campaign success or our marketing success overall, there's a lot of different things that we would be looking at. So uh, whereas, you know, historically, we've been much more focused on looking at product performance or looking at the performance within individual channels, 
as part of the transformation that we've been undergoing at Office Depot Europe to transform into an omni-channel business, which very much means breaking down the silos of looking at channels individually, but looking at the customer and what the customer needs and to a certain degree, not looking at the channels anymore. And I think by by doing that as well during the last year, that has helped us to understand the customer a lot better and also what works and what doesn't work. Because there's no sense, or it doesn't make any sense for us to you know, measure, for example, a catalog of performance when we don't know if our catalogs are reaching our customers anymore because we're not sure if they're at home or you know, if they're still going into the office because we're still sending most of our material into the offices. So it's really looking at it from a, from a customer point of view and measuring the customer, not the channel, and then benchmarking ourselves against competition or against what the market is doing. I don't think looking at traditional office supplies, obviously during COVID, they've been decreasing. So it's not only that they're decreasing with, you know, with ourselves, but they're decreasing overall. So it's how do we benchmark against what's happening in the market, but what other categories can come in to compensate for this? which is then perfectly fine because if we can compensate our sales through new categories or through increasing things like um, disinfectants, um, toilet paper, (laughs) um, (laughs) I think that's going to be one of my favorite examples out of COVID time is is the amount of toilet paper we sold. No, but you're, you're going to have to start counterbalancing your product sales by shifting your focus into categories that weren't as high on your radar as, as previously. But, and then in terms of your campaigning or your channels, it's just, it's, it's going to be different. We've had a tremendous amount of increase, obviously on our website, you know, customers coming more to our website than potentially calling into our call centers, which has also been still quite popular in some of the countries. And it's understanding that shift that customers are going through and, and, and trying to make sense of it and also accepting it that this is the way that things are going and times are changing. But by not looking at an isolated channel anymore, so you know, potentially looking at certain call center KPIs, they just might not be relevant anymore. So as we've gone through this this change and and the customer changing and the market changing, it was really important for us to also change our KPIs and then you know the way that we measure because some of the more traditional KPIs are just not as applicable anymore as they've been before. We've been testing quite a bit to see what works, what doesn't work. So what I find very interesting here is that people behave like their KPIs, I understand. So you went from, yeah, maybe a less customer-centric organization if you look at KPIs because it's channel performs a lot of get amount of people that are coming on the website, amount of email opens. But if you start evaluating people in that way, I understand that what you're saying is then people start not thinking about the customer, but thinking about the, the performance of their channels. And you guys made a total shift to saying, okay, let's, those channel performance, it's, it's indicative. It's, it's interesting to know, but what we actually want is we want to put the customer at the center of our organization and start working with customer centric KPIs. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. So from, from my perspective and, and from the audience perspective, what, what, what are a good example of customer centric KPIs that you would track to, to allow to understand how good the customer is in relationship to Office Depot? Well, you know, two fundamental things for us that we're looking at is customer journey analytics. You know, how many touch points has 
the customer interacted with before they placed an order with us because that really gives us a good understanding of really the combination of channels or touch points that are needed to, to get that conversion. The same is with um, attribution modeling. So really how much of the final sale can we then attribute to those different touch points? But then it's really looking about, you know, what percentage of customers are active and actively coming back to us? You know, how many multi-buyers can we generate? How many of the new customers that we gain during this COVID time are, are staying loyal customers with us? Have we been able to increase the share of wallet of specific customers, breaking it down to the different customer segments. So not looking at the entire customer base, but looking at the kind of smaller customers or the larger customers, do they behave differently? Because it's quite easy. And I think this is the trap that a lot of people will fall into, especially on a more senior level, is they tend to look at the sales. How much sales do we generate? But sales are... It's a product of different things coming together. You know, your your customer, how frequently does your customer come? How high is the order value of that customer? That's what makes your sales. And and those are the KPIs you should be a lot more focused on than just saying, I want to grow my sales or I want to do more. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. That, that makes sense. How do you measure brand awareness, for example? Eh? If you run brand awareness campaigns, eh? because you want to be top of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and you want to say, Okay, give me two office suppliers. The first one should be Viking or Office Depot, of obviously. Course, so, but <laughs> from a marketing perspective, you need to invest. But doesn't I understand that it potentially doesn't immediately generate a sale? So, you need, you know, share of wallet very important. I understand amount of um, customer journey touch points. Attribution modeling is very um, attractive. So, those are techniques you would recommend to the audience to use to look at really from a customer journey perspective. Absolutely. I have a, another important question there that I that I sometimes <laughs> across. So the attribution modeling, it helps you, you know, which team helped to consolidate a sale or which channel or uh, campaign contributed to a, a specific conversion. The question I often ask, how do you make the link to, okay, we have the attribution modeling. Do you then use those results to adapt your marketing budgets in the different channels for each country? Because I can... I can imagine that every attribution model in every country could be different. Or how do you work with the results of of your attribution modeling and journey KPIs? How does that get fed back into the marketing planning system? Oh, I was already afraid you were going to ask me a very analytical question. No, no. (laughs) Were you going to get me into trouble with with my data science guys Um, (laughs) and how they they built the attribution model? no, but indeed, so we um, we do look at attributed sales um, across the different countries, across the different channels, um, and how that kind of shifts on a month-by-month base, and then we'll, we will adjust our budgets accordingly. So uh, we do very actively work with us. So again, we have a process in place um, of reviewing this on a regular base, and then looking at do we invest or not invest into specific channels. So we will adapt our budgets based on this, yes. And uh, the same goes with our journey analytics. And but it, you know, it's it's been a process of of getting to that point. Um, it's not something that just kind of happens from one day to another. And it's um, everybody has to learn to work with the data differently because there's, you know, in the first instance, it seems like there's winners and losers because some channels will get more sales attributed, other channels will get less sales attributed. So there's a 
there's a degree of change management that needs to go with this. No, it makes sense. But, you know, you talk about your 80-20-20 rule and, and we've talked about it in the beginning about you set your marketing plan and your campaign planning 80-20. Then we talked about, um, you know, ad adapting agility, flexibility in your planning. Um, it's it's uh, also 80-20. So you, you, you have your mar marketing plan set 20. But then again, at the budget level, you're saying again, every evaluation round or every time you sit together, you also there, I assume then that your budget is partly fixed, but based on the outputs of the attribution models, you start shifting your budget to get better conversion and, and, and results. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, that's, you know, one of the major benefits that we have of being a centralized European organization is we can not only, you know, shuffle and then move our budgets around across the different channels, but we can also do this across the different countries because there's very few decision makers that come together for all of Europe. So we can really, you know, see how markets are shifting, how our sales are shifting across the different channels, because, you know, there's going to be a lot of country-specific impacts, such as, you know, seasonality, holiday periods, and we can... Well, Constantly might be a little bit too much, but on a, on a regular base, you know, we can review the numbers and then we can together as a group, we can decide if we want to start shifting some of those budgets across. And that's that really makes us much stronger as a group. But here again, the most important thing is I think we do this. It, it's a joint decision. So we have, you know, the, the owners of the channels, um, we have different marketing teams coming together and kind of reviewing this together. That makes sense. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, we talked a bit about evaluation. Attribution modeling is a way to evaluate your marketing efforts. Whenever you, you put in measurement in place, people are, are a bit scared and, and then they ask, yeah, We've been doing marketing for five years and we got good results. Now you start measuring, what should I do when the results are bad? It's a hurdle that people are afraid of to take. They say, yeah, but maybe I don't want to show you that I have bad results. So what do you do eh, to, to, what do you do as a marketer when you have a bad result, right? And, and how do you communicate that to your manager? And how, how, how should an organization look at that? Well, it's a it's a culture change. So you you need to let your people know that it's okay to to fail sometimes or to make mistakes sometimes. Um, so I think before you start kind of changing those KPIs, or also be you know aware that people might be afraid of all of a sudden you start measuring something you haven't done before. You start measuring things differently because ultimately you, you're trying to do something better for the company and trying to get better results for the customer. So. If somebody does deliver bad results or not as good as they have been previously, as long as you understand why they've changed or, you know, what didn't work and you then optimize and move on from there, there's no reason anybody should be worried about things being measured because you can obviously only improve and get better if you know what's gone wrong and if you can, you know, start measuring it, but then also afterwards measure the success if you've done something right. So... I don't think anybody ever needs to be afraid of, you know, putting those measurements in place, but it's very much responsibility, I think, of of all the different management levels to let people know it's okay for things to go wrong sometimes. And when you change that, you know, when you communicate that, that, um, that when you allow people 
to have bad results. Did did that did you see an impact in in the organization? Was there more experimentation, more creativity, or do you see any benefits of of, of having these type of cultures where you foster? Um, yeah, feel fast. Actually, it's almost right. It's um, yeah, it is, and you know we we can see people are a lot more open. You know, willing uh, willing to share, but we have been testing quite a lot in all the different uh, campaigns or channels. So we very much have a established test and learn culture. But again, that's taken time to, to grow. It's, you know, somebody somebody needs to take the first step and say, you know, it's it's okay and, and I'm willing to do this. But it also sometimes takes management to stand in front of, you know, the employees and say, you know, I've I've made a wrong decision or we've done something that wasn't right, but we've learned from it and we've moved on. So I think it's, if you lead by example as a manager, then your people will start to feel that, but also don't, you know, don't punish people. Don't tell them, you know, something's gone wrong or something's bad, but give them that kind of comfort blanket of, you know, it's okay sometimes if, if things don't go as planned. Okay. okay. And, you know, one will catch on from the other. It makes sense. Yeah, it is. Um, it's 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 leading by example. I, I assume you, as a manager, also sometimes make Me? have bad Never. results or take wrong decisions. <laughs> <laughs> no, Probably of course. Not, but <laughs> no, of course. And um, at least the way I like to manage my team is, you know, or just the way that I am is, you know, I'll you can hold me accountable for everything I do. I, you know, if I, if I've done something wrong or something didn't go as planned, just, I'll just say it as it is and, and move on from there. Don't, don't dwell on the past, but, you know, look at the future. What can you do? Cause you can't change anything that's happened in the past anyway. No, that's true. You can learn and build, build together. I think uh, build together yeah. on the road to, to success. Um, we're kind of coming to the end of the of this episode. Um, what what can you say to um, organizations that are at the start of um, implementing marketing planning processes? And what, what are your your best tips and tricks for those people that are starting that marketing planning journey? Um, start small. Don't try to cover everything at once. You know. It's start start off with one channel, one market, you know, depending on where you're coming from um, and really, you know, find the best way for yourself of how to organize um, the different teams and and then start adding on. Because if you if you try to do everything at once, it just it becomes overwhelming um, and it seems like an impossible task to do. But if you really start small with consolidating uh, two countries, uh, for example, then you kind of, you'll start to see the natural and, and right next step. And yeah, and, and don't have your mindset on planning means you need to fix things. <laughs> Always make sure that you have enough headspace to say there's flexibility and, and room to change things. Okay, interesting. So Sandy, I really, I really learned a lot during these sessions about having customer journey KPIs, having your 80-20% rule is something I, I also taking home. <laughs> and then the last one is 
don't try to eat the whale at once try to chop it in pieces and <laughs> exactly do piece per, uh, by piece thank you for joining this podcast it was it was really fun for me thank you for that and um, on this bombshell we'll um, end this episode have a great day everybody thanks Stephen. 